What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thing is that when the Torah was being put together, probably after the uh, exile from Babylon after the return, it was being put together primarily under the control, I suspect, of the priestly tradition. And they put enough for a different vision of God up front in chapter one. We call it chapter one of Genesis. I'm imagining it like this is the spectacles they want you to put on before you read this whole Bible. There's no New Testament yet. Because there you have God making human beings in God's own image and likeness. And immediately that's explained as being put in charge of the world to run it for God like God's stewards, as we're God's representatives, God's ambassadors or anything else. We're in charge of the world to run it for God. And immediately, by the way, you're told that this is under the Sabbath rule, because that's the whole point of that even God can't skip the Sabbath as where God has to rest, because the Sabbath is, as it is clear from the rule, everyone has a right to a day off. Everyone has a right to rest, even your ass and your your ox and your slave, everyone has a right to a rest. It's not about, it's not about taking a day off to pray. God demands, we're not even talking about food yet. We're talking about the most basic thing because you have to feed your slave, but you don't have to feed, give your slave a rest. So Sabbath day, Sabbath year, Sabbath jubilee makes time beat to the rhythm of human justice. That's what we're told we're supposed to do. That's our image and likeness. That's who we're made. Now, nowhere in that first chapter do I find any mention of punishments, of sanctions. If you were, if you were to say to God in Genesis 1, but what if I don't accept your image and likeness? What if I live against your image and likeness? Then I think the answer would be, then you're living against your nature and the consequences will be you will destroy yourself. And there will be no punishments, but there will be consequences. To, to use a rather crude example, if, if I go up to the 30th story of a building and think I'm a bird and try to fly, that's not my nature. But God does not hit me with the, puni- with the pavement as a punishment. That's a consequence. That's a result. 
So this vision of the first book of the Torah, in a way, counteracts the last book of the Torah and the last chapter, and says there are consequences of who you are and what you are, and you can't get away with going against it. But they're not punishments; they are intrinsic consequences, not extrinsic punishments. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and I am so happy to have power again. Uh, So sorry for those of you who have been waiting on new content and the delay. Uh, Here in Ohio, we had some pretty bad storms, and it knocked out part of our power grid. And uh, the other portion of it that was still up and active was getting uh, majorly taxed by uh, this heat wave we have going through. So everybody was flipping on their AC and... uh, So we had rolling blackouts, and I did not have power for two days, uh, which is quite miserable. So so we're back. Uh, If you're new here, welcome. So glad that you found us. Uh, For all things deconstructionist, please check out our website. Uh, You can go to www.thedeconstructionist.com. There you can link to us on social media, read our blog, snag a t-shirt or coffee mug or pint glass from our web store, support us on Patreon, or listen to our entire back catalog of episodes for free. Uh, from the past six years. Uh, Also, don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite platform so you don't miss a single new episode. And please, if you could, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, It helps new listeners to find us. This week, I have returning guest, Dr. John Dominic Crossan. Uh, Loved my first conversation with him, I believe, a couple years ago. Uh, He is one of the foremost New Testament scholars, as well as a historian of early Christianity, former Catholic priest, and Emeritus Professor at DePaul University. His research has focused on the historical Jesus, on the cultural anthropology of the ancient Mediterranean and New Testament worlds, and on the application of postmodern hermeneutical approaches to the Bible. We talk all about his brand new book, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle Over Christ and Culture in the New Testament, and its applications to the world we currently live in. As always, it was a fascinating conversation. I always feel like I'm getting free school uh, when he comes on or when I read some of his, uh, his works. Uh, and it's one that I hope that you'll enjoy. So without further ado, I give you John Dominic Crossan. I can't accept that it was all just a lie. Welcome back to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I, I welcome back uh, a wonderful guest that I was excited to have on uh, based on his new book, John Dominic Cross. And thank you so much for coming back. Oh, it was a show. pleasure, John. Good to be back with you. Absolutely. So so when you sent this book in the mail, uh, I took a look at it and immediately was like, oh my gosh, this is this is the very thing that we've been talking about for a while. Um, you know, I, I, those who've been listening to the podcast for a while have probably heard me say, you know, gosh, America 
really feels like the new Rome in a lot of ways. Like we are the empire now. And so talk a little bit about what inspired this book, because this is really kind of a continuation of an earlier work. In 2007, everyone was talking about we are the only superpower. The other superpowers are gone. We are the new Rome. And I, I, I simply wanted to say, why would we celebrate America? whether it is or is not. Why would we celebrate the new Rome? If you're a Christian, they crucified your Lord. And if you're a Jew, they burned your temple to the ground. Why would you celebrate America as the new Rome, at least, even if it is? So that's about as far as I was on it then, the comparison. So God and the empire was all I was talking about. Now the comparison is much more acute. If you start, for example, with the fact that Rome started with an autocrat. They had a king. Let's call him an autocrat, to be general. Then they had a republic. They got, they got rid of their autocrats. They dumped their kings, as we did with George III. <laughs> My own homeland, Ireland, tried to do it too. It wasn't so successful with George III. Anyway, they got rid of their autocrat, the king. They got a republic. They got a republic with a senate and everything else, the senate and people of Rome. Then they had a civil war as they began to get an empire. So they started to get an empire, and there was a tension, of course, between republic and empire, so they had a civil war, a savage civil war with battle-hardened legions on both sides. Then they started to get rid of their republic in the process of the civil war, and ended up with an autocrat. They did a complete circle. And of course, the autocrat was Caesar Augustus. And maybe you might say, well, you could do worse. And yeah, maybe you could, but by the end of the first century, they weren't celebrating him too much. By the end of his dynasty with, you know, Caligula dead by assassination and, and uh, Nero by suicide to avoid assassination. So I'm trying to look now where exactly on that scenario are we at the moment? And that's not particularly original. Um, Mike Duncan has said the same thing. We're somewhere in there between the danger of losing our republic and getting an autocrat. And when I started this book, it was three and a half years ago. It was, um, I think, November of 18, of 2018, when I pitched it to my editor in Harper One. So I was in a different atmosphere, but still an atmosphere that, that is possible also for the future. So that was, that was what started it. And then the idea was to look at how did those first Christians, how did they maneuver and negotiate in that atmosphere of the Republic becoming the empire and the autocrat coming in. And of course, <laughs> the crown at all, metaphorically speaking, with Caesar Augustus, who was divine, a human being who was divine here on earth, not hereafter, you know, when he goes up among the gods, but right here on earth, as Horace celebrated, right here on earth, we worship you. This was something new. Before Jesus ever appeared, it was ever even heard of. There was a, a person in the Mediterranean world of the first century who was definitely a human being, could live and die, and he was considered to be God incarnate, Caesar Augustus. So this is the atmosphere into which the whole New Testament comes. That's, that's the matrix, if you will. Yeah, and I, I think that's really an interesting point that you make is is the fact that uh, you know Caesar was worshipped as as God incarnate, and so when in the Bible in the New Testament we say that Jesus is God, uh, that's almost takes on a very uh, political. Uh, that's a very political statement to make. At, at it's that time. it's intensely 
I mean, you cannot get away from it. The, the irony is this. There's, well, for example, think of that coin on the outside of the book. It's in Greek, but it says Caesar is God. Theos, Sebastos, Kaiser. I mean, it's nice and simple. Three words. Um, the, the way to understand it is this. The job description for a divine human being in the first script, in the first century, if you're running for office as a divine human being, you had to have done something of transcendental value for the human race by somebody's at least assessment and thereby sort of manifested the power of the wisdom of God. That's your job description. Caesar, of course, had brought peace after 20 years of brutal, savage civil war. He brought peace and then he lives for what, 40 more years as emperor. So he brought peace, the Pax Romana, the vaunted Pax Romana. So that made sense to people. He, he lived on the Palatine Hill in Rome and he ruled the world. Uh, you, you see him with the orb of the world in his hand and the scepter of control. Now along comes this peasant from Galilee, from the Nazareth ridge in Galilee. And his people are talking about him as all the titles are Caesar's. Lord, son of God, God incarnate. Redeemer from sin, even when of Caesar's title, savior of the world, another title of Caesar. So if you're a Roman aristocrat and you heard this, if you heard this, you would probably say, this sounds to me like Saturday Night Live. This is some kind of a spoof. Now, I'm not amused, but these people can't be serious. I mean, come on. <laughs> but then the Romans were smart enough to know, yeah, they're dead serious. And the Romans said, well, we make them serious dead. <laughs> because yes, it's intensely political. <laughs> it's asking really, how do we run this world? It's not about heaven. The Romans would be perfectly happy if Jesus wanted to talk about heaven, that pat him on the head and say, off you go, have a nice day. But don't talk about the world. We're in charge down here, divinely in charge down here, mandated by the gods. And that's the clash. So any fidelity to Jesus, you're quite free, of course, to say, I think Jesus is, you know, totally wrong and I want nothing to do with him. But what you shouldn't say about Jesus, it was, he was just a nice guy. You know, he patted little babies on the head and he told these lovely little stories and he's really cute. No, that's not fair. I mean, the Romans didn't, didn't, cute, didn't kill cute people. <laughs> they didn't really crucify you <laughs> unless you're interfering with Roman law and order. So to be even honest to Jesus or honest to Pilate, for that matter, you'd have to say from their point of view, Jesus was doing something that they considered to be adversarial to Roman law and order. And their solution was public demonstrative execution. He didn't just die. He was executed. Yeah, and, and you talk about the meaning behind the execution and what led up to it. But before we get to that, the prologue, I felt like the prologue alone in this book is very powerful because um, you quote a couple of different people. Uh, first of all, you, you talk about um, uh, kind of Rome and, and the two different views of Rome through the eyes of uh, two different poets, Virgil and Horace. And Horace kind of rightly predicts the fall of Rome and that you know ultimately Rome, as powerful as it was, the only thing that would defeat Rome is Rome itself, that it would, it would fall internally. And then you also quote John Adams, you know, in a, in a reply to John Taylor. And this, I'd never heard this quote before, but he says, 
Democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There was never democracy yet that did not commit suicide. Uh, holy cow. Of the French and so Revolution. there's these, you know, long before you, you yeah. get the autocrat back. Yeah, I mean, Horace actually, you know, he's right there. The, the year, I think, was uh, about, um, was it 50 or, no, it was 40, 40. He's looking around and he's saying, look, we, we run the world. Nobody can destroy us but ourselves. And of course, he's saying this is the fight going on since the death of, of uh, Julius Caesar. 20 years of civil war. Now, imagine with legions on both sides. And they're devastating most of, the, most of Greece in the process. It's like, let's have a real fight in Greece. It's much easier. Don't have it in Italy. So he's looking at it and he says, now it's overdramatic to be sure. He says, let's give up. Let's simply abandon the city to the wild beasts and the barbarians. And we take ships and we go west. Wherever. So, you know, that is the way, because the Republic had produced two consuls. It was a magnificent idea. We'll have no autocrat. We'll have two people, as if we had a Democratic and a Republican president, each in for a year, one in the West Wing, one in the East Wing. They're both in for a year, each keeping an eye on the other. And it really worked for 700 years for Rome until they got an empire. And then Pompey in the East and Julius Caesar in the West said, huh, we're not coming back to negotiate and deal with one another. They went to war. So instead of getting, they got rid of autocracy and got anarchy. And if you were there in the year 40, you'd said it's over. I don't think it's going to destroy itself. And that's the way a republic can do to itself. It can destroy itself internally if there's nobody externally who can do it to it. So the parallels and the warnings, and as you said, Adams, and it's there. They're probably looking at the French Revolution, I suspect, as much as anyone, you know, that went, went to, from republic to savagery to Napoleon. I don't know if he knew actually the exactly the same thing had happened to the Roman emperor. Maybe he did as well. But it's sort of a warning, you know, and that, I put that up front, at least in the prologue, that this is something that we should pay very close attention to. We shouldn't think, well, it's forever, because the Romans were convinced it would last forever too. Virgil celebrated at the same time as Horace. He celebrated it magnificently, gorgeous, gorgeous prose. He celebrated the Roman Empire and Caesar Augustus. Yeah, it kind of feels. It kind of feels like historically speaking, all of these great empires of the past probably all thought they were going to last forever—the Ottomans and the Babylonians and the yeah. Persians, you know—and eventually they all fell the one way or another. So it's kind of said, now we're just here for a while, you know. We we have our hundred years or something, and then we take our place in the dustbin of history, and, and that's all right. We move on. Nobody's ever said that. The, every empire has been convinced, despite <laughs> the trajectory of the past, that it's going to be the one including the Roman Empire. It declared itself to be the final empire, actually. You know, the definitive empire for all time. And over against that, of course, you get Daniel and Jesus and Paul and people like that saying the only empire that lasts, if you want to use that term, is God's rule. So over against any of these rules of civilization, they were glimpsing an alternative. 
And that's what I really I wanted to stress in the book. If somebody says, well, I'm not interested in God, I don't care about Jesus and New Testament words. What we're really talking about is models for running the world. Now, you can laugh at them. You can say they're silly or this doesn't work or that doesn't work. But it's deadly serious business. It has to do with how do we run the world so we don't destroy it and ourselves in the process. I think that's a question worth working on. And I'm willing to hear anyone speak about it. And that's why I'm interested in the first century, because I'm watching them struggle with that, with that question, with that problem, and giving their life to try and solve it. Yeah, definitely. It, it absolutely is a good question, uh, a question worth asking and, and wrestling with. So the beginning of the book, uh, you start out with, with kind of asking uh, the, this question, you know, why... You know why was Jesus executed, and what you know what what took place based on the accounts that we see? Why was that uh, the the starting point? Why was that an important place to, well, to begin? I wanted to explain that the the question about the, the coin was where I wanted to start. Basically, the coin that's offered to Jesus and what he says about it. But I thought I better explain what's he doing in Jerusalem. You know, did he go up to Jerusalem every year? And if that happened, then what happened this one year that hadn't happened any other year? And if he did go up once, which is, I suspect, because I'm not certain that a day laborer like Jesus could get two weeks off and have money. I mean, real money, not, not barter and, and go up to Jerusalem. But anyway, I suspect that Jesus was told by friends in Jerusalem, maybe they were a little bit nasty the way they said it, I'm imagining. Can you get out of those hick towns in Galilee if you're serious about your message of God's ruling the world? Bring it up here to Jerusalem where everything counts and bring it at Passover when people are here from all over the Roman Empire. And I think they said to him, come up, we can protect you. During the day, you'll have your screen of protection in the temple. We, we won't let the authorities get at you. And then every night, get out of Jerusalem, get round the bend of the Mount of Olives to Bethany and you're safe at night. So I'm setting this scene in which then Jesus is in the temple. The, the high priests are we don't have to demonize them. They're scared. <laughs> any, kind of a, any kind of a too loud hiccup at Passover was dangerous because they're celebrating in a crowded space, freedom from Egypt, when they can look up at the Fortress Antonio and see the soldiers up there. They're under Rome. So how do we celebrate freedom from Egypt when we're under Rome? All that would take in a crowded atmosphere of somebody to say anything, so riot control was at a maximum, I would say. That's why Pilate was in Jerusalem. So Jesus is asked this question. And the question is, it's a trap question. It's a gotcha. It's a, it's a huge gotcha. Should we give census? Should we pay tribute to Caesar or not? It, it sounds like an innocent question. <laughs> as innocent as should we pay taxes to the federal government or not? Well, try not doing it and see what happens. So if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't. That's treason. Yes, we should. That's treason to his own homeland, as it were. He, he seems like he's caught. And Jesus does, does a perfect counter-gotcha. I don't carry the coin. Show me Caesar's coin. So they have to show him the coin. And then he asks the key question, whose image and inscription is this? Image and inscription. That's where it's very important, because this, the inscription on the coin, I'm imagining, says that Caesar is God. 
Now, on the one hand, Jesus has got out of the gotcha by saying, I, I, I don't carry the coin. So they're probably saying, did he say yes or no? If you don't carry the coin, how could you pay the taxes? So, but then Jesus does this last line, and it's not an aphorism all by itself. We keep quoting rendered to Caesar as if he, that's a one-liner, like blessed of the poor. It's the, the punchline of a conversation, if you will, the punchline, because they've shown them the equation of Caesar and God on a coin, and he says, render to God, Actually, in Greek, it's apodote, give back, give back to Caesar, Caesar's stuff, and give back to God then, God's stuff. So you're left and, well, they're divided and they can't be equated because the coin says that Caesar's stuff and God's stuff is the same, as it were, and Jesus says they're separated. So he must have left everyone thinking, well, if they're separated, and we have to live in this world where Caesar runs it from Rome, and yeah, God runs it from heaven, but Rome is a little bit closer than heaven. So how do we operate? How do we operate with this separation? In one sense, the Roman system is much simpler. Caesar is God, whatever Caesar says is divine. <laughs> Get over it. <laughs> so this is the, the legacy, as it were, that Jesus leaves, and of course it's precisely what gets him crucified, because Roman law, civil law, says if you stir up the people or create turmoil among the people, that's nonviolent, we call it activism actually, nonviolent activism, we will crucify you. We pick off your leader, and if you're still at it five years from now, then we take the next leader. They didn't bother crucifying a leader with all his top lieutenants unless it was violent, like Barabbas. Barabbas is in jail, for example, with all of those who had, from the Roman point of view, conspired against them. From the Jewish point of view, they might be freedom fighters. So Jesus then leaves this, this challenge, as it were, to the New Testament. If you separate the things of God and Caesar, how do you live under them both? And that's really where I start then into the book and look at two actually opposing responses to that within the New Testament itself, still within the first hundred years after Jesus. That's the book of Revelation and the two-volume book that we have split now into the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. I call it Luke Acts, and I hyphenated to imagine it as it left the hand of Luke, using Luke just as the name of that anonymous author. So that would be the, the second and the third part then of the book, looking at Revelation, looking at Luke Acts. Yeah, and I thought the, the very beginning uh, where, where you dive into Revelation uh, it, it is absolutely fascinating because it's a very strange kind of document uh, that talks about a lot of strange things. And, you know, Martin Luther is famous for saying it. if he could, he would have tossed it into the river. But I think um, the first time I read, you know, we were talking about your, your, uh, your dear friend Marcus Borg. Uh, he had an, uh, kind of a breakdown in his book, uh, reading, reading the Bible again for the first time that I absolutely loved as kind of this, um, veiled way of, of critiquing empire and specifically the Roman empire. And you, you dive straight into it and talk about, uh, you know, the symbolism in there, like six, 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 uh, and what that actually means, uh, using this, this ancient technique called Gemashria. 
And uh, so, so talk about that a little bit. Talk about what, what is Revelation yeah. meant to be? And I'm going to say something. It's actually a stunningly simple thesis that's presented, but it's done with, with, by battering you with images so you don't have time to think. Seven bowls come at you, maybe right to that seven, or horseman. You, it doesn't want you to be able to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going on here? It's deliberate, like, like hitting you with a light, you know. Um, the, th- the theme is very simple. Here's, here it is. In the, Rome has slaughtered Christians in the immediate past. God and Christ, Christ, are going to slaughter Romans in the imminent future. It's like a great big divine vengeance. Now, that's basically the theme. It's going to show you that over and over and over again, but that's basically what it's saying. So it's not going to give you a nice narrative of this leads to this. It's going to say the same thing with stunning metaphors, metaphors, until you're kind of battered back there and you're stunned <laughs> into, into silence, if not agreement, as it were. Now, here's the problem of the book of Revelation. Scholars used to say, well, it's written in the time of, of um, Domitian, the 90s of the first century, and I agree with that. And therefore, Romans must have been persecuting Christians murderously because it's not just isolated examples. It's like the basic thing the Roman Empire does is murder Christians. It's like apparently what the, the only thing they do. Now, today's scholars are saying, we have absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever, and everything we know is against it. Yes, there was that horrible case with Nero after the great fire of Rome, which, if anything, made Romans sympathetic to Christians because they knew Nero was, a, was Nero. But where do we get this idea that the Roman Empire has been slaughtering Christians for the last 30 years? It's just not true. In fact, at the beginning of the next century, when you get Pliny the Younger runs into Christians at, at Pontus and the southern Black Sea coast, he's like, he doesn't seem to know what to, to do with them. Like, he hasn't heard of these people. He has to write back to Trajan to say, well, wait, 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 what do I do with them? And then you've got Ignatius of Antioch traveling to Rome, to the arena in Rome, traveling through the same area, writing to many of the same churches. He doesn't say a word about your persecutions. So this idea of Rome's main <laughs> activity as slaughtering Christians is just not true. And obviously, the thesis that God is coming soon to slaughter Romans just didn't happen. And I would consider it, quite frankly, a libel on Christ, who rode into Jerusalem on a peace donkey, that he's coming back to do it properly on a war horse. But leave that aside for the moment. So the question is, why would John say that? He's an exile in Patmos, by the way. He wasn't martyred. He was an exile in Patmos, which is another thing Rome did to leaders that were causing trouble. If they were sort of had good following, you ex- exile them. Don't crucify them or do something. So I think what he is doing is this. You could imagine somebody in one of those cities, he writes to Ephesus, for example, or Smyrna, saying, I'm a good, I'm a good Christian. I worship God. I don't worship Caesar. I worship God, but I don't see why I can't be a good Roman trader, merchant. I don't see why I can't ship my olive oil 
to this Mediterranean globalization, which is really great for trade. This is what this is what Revelation is really after. He never he hardly mentions the legions. The, the traders, the merchants, are seem to get the worst vision because Rome, he says, is the bordello of the Mediterranean. So all of these people coming to Rome to do business, they're just going to a bordello. I'm using a more polite term. He doesn't use that polite term, as you know. So what he is trying to do is make it so, make Rome so murderously vile, so pornographically evil, that nobody in the right mind should want to have anything to do with it. Because Roman Mediterranean globalization is what Roman imperialism was about. They weren't just interested in grabbing land. They were interested in globalization, trade, business. So the book of Revelation points straight at that. Don't have anything to do with it. And that's his thesis, to stun you into such silence that when you're finished, you can't even, you shouldn't be able to think even of doing anything with Rome whatsoever. It's demonic. So before we go too much further, there's a term I think that's important to define that you mentioned in the book uh, and, and, and go a little more deeply into later in the book, uh, this term acculturation. So explain for the listeners what, what you mean by that. I mean, by acculturation, I mean just taking the culture that's there that you grow up in without even thinking about it too much, swimming in the culture, like maybe if I could say this, a swim, a fish swims in the sea, I think without wondering, you know, am I in the Mediterranean or the Atlantic? I mean, acculturation sort of as a rather blind accommodation of whatever's going on, to whatever's going on. So if, if, if you're, if you're in a, a world, for example, if you happen to be in Russia at the moment, and this is what everyone is saying, and this is what you're hearing on the news and everything, if you simply acculturate, you split, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. You don't think in plain language. What you are supposed to do with your culture is think about it. <laughs> that's the first thing you're supposed to do. Question it. I don't, it doesn't mean you have to rebel against it, but you shouldn't just simply acculturate. But um, most of the Roman Empire is doing is acculturating to it. What a Jesus does, or a Paul, that's why they're going to end up dead, of course, is they refuse to acculturate. They're seeing a different vision. You could say they're seeing a different culture, but it, it is a radically different culture. So acculturation is the term I used for um, simply accepting the culture you grow up in as reality. This is the way it is as if you grew up in a totally isolated world in which everyone spoke English, you wouldn't know you were speaking English. You were just speaking. <laughs> you might presume everyone else is speaking the same language if you even knew about everyone else. And then maybe the first time we heard another language, you'd say, hmm, these people can't be human. So acculturation is both necessary, if you will, but it always has to be done very, very carefully cautiously, critically. And the models are for doing it are Jesus, for example, or Moses, the prophets in the Old Testament. That's exactly what they're doing. When a prophet goes up to speak to a king, you know the king's in trouble. So talk about it a little bit. So the, the next portion of the book, you, you kind of get into, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Luke Acts. And so 
first of all, like who, who wrote it? Why is it important to know who wrote it? And secondly, the second part of the question is why read the two together? Why see it as one united volume or one united Let me take the first one first. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know who wrote any of the New Testaments except in later tradition. They, they were, I'm sure they were written for a community that supported them, that knew exactly who wrote them and didn't have to put the name on it. And then the names were put on probably in the second century. They're anonymous. Now, you can, however, work out a profile of an author. If you were handed a, an op-ed, say, and you have no idea who wrote it, you'd be able to figure out a fair amount. You might be able to say Democrat, Republican, left, right, pro. You'd be able to write a profile. So it's more important actually to read, I'm going to say Luke Acts for the moment, and work out a profile of the author. Is he Jewish, for example? Is he a God worshiper, a God fearer? Is he a pure Gentile? Now that you can work out. And of course you're, you're working out the profile from the book. Here's the point. It's a simple question of logistics. Take, take Josephus. He writes a book about his life. He can fit that in one scroll, one papyrus scroll, because a papyrus scroll can only be around 30 feet long or it starts to break apart. It's, it's, the, the pages are glued. When it's wrapped up, it would open, and you couldn't maneuver it if, it's, if it's too big. So... A certain amount, you can get Mark or you can get Matthew or you can get John into a single scroll or you can get the life, as I said, of Josephus. He comes to write against Appian. He needs two scrolls for it. Comes to write Jewish War 7, 20 for Jewish Antiquities. It's simply logistics. How much can you fit in a single papyrus scroll? Now, here's the danger. When you have one that needs two scrolls, the danger they might get separated. Some librarian might put one here and one there. Luke Acts, the, let me put it, the author needs two scrolls. By the way, our term volume comes from volumen, which is the Latin for scroll. So we're, we're talking the same language. Luke, I'm, this is the anonymous person. The name he's been given is Luke. I'm going to use it. I'm not going to put it quotation marks every time, but Luke needs two scrolls for his message. Because his message is going to be that the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus, takes him from from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, then at baptism, then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and takes the apostles, especially Paul, all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. End of story. The last scene is Paul's in Rome and the last word, the last word in Greek is what we translate as unhindered. So that's like the manifesto. The, The theme of that is, and Paul, by the way, would turn over in his grave to hear it and be kicking and screaming if he were alive, is that the future does not belong to Jewish Christianity, but to Roman Christianity. In other words, acculturate to Rome. Now, obviously, Rome is going to have to give. <laughs> They'll have to talk about this divine Caesar. But, but basically, Roman, Roman peace allows the church to flourish. So what you're getting in Luke-Acts is the first step towards Constantine. And it's part of the process that will take you from Christ to Constantine, from Nazareth to Nicaea. You're saying, yes, we could work out a way in which the Roman Empire and Christianity can accommodate to one another. And that's sort of why in Luke-Acts, for example, 
every single Roman official who meets either Jesus or Paul exculpates them and says they're innocent. They haven't done anything against Roman law and order. It's true they get into trouble with their fellow Jews, but that's, that's not our business. You've never seen so many exculpated by so few. It's like a perfect storm of innocence because that's the manifesto of this. Rome should look at Christianity and say it has done nothing wrong. Pilate will say it three times about Jesus and so will the centurion beneath the cross and so will the client prince Herod Antipas in Luke. Same thing happens to Paul. So you've got this manifesto of the future and to be fair, Luke is the only one, whether we like it or not, who got the, new, got the right. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Unbelievably, Rome is going to con- convert. And then we'll have to decide who converted who. <laughs> was the price, was, was Constantine too much to pay, <laughs> you know, to get the peace? Who converted whom is the question of the fourth century. But Luke Acts really lays out the scenario for Roman Christianity. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, I, I love where you talk about in the book, uh, you know, this this kind of tug... Uh, tug of war kind of between Rome and Christianity and, and what's the cost? Like who has to, somebody has yep. to give a little or, or both and, and what, what, at what cost, you know, uh, to, to fully acculturate. And to be fair to them, I mean, you, you have to understand in the beginning, in a way it was easy. The first, I shouldn't say easy. I don't mean that, but theologically it was possible to say, well, the Roman empire, after all, it's pagan as pagan. So we want to have nothing to do with it. it but now, all of a sudden, the Roman Empire is joining you. The Roman Empire is willing to build big churches for you. Now, it's true that Constantine still has a halo, by the way, so he's still divine. Now, it's a little bit tricky, this Council of Nicaea, because it's not quite that he has lost his divinity. The Roman Emperor is now Christian and divine, so the problem of Nicaea is going to be, how do we handle a divine emperor and a divine Christ? And maybe the deal we'll make is they'll run the earth and we'll run heaven. We'll be in charge of heaven and they'll be in charge of earth. But it's going to be very, very difficult to handle a Christian emperor. Are we going to have to say, well, that's what we wanted all along, a Christian emperor and a Christian empire. We're home free. We've, we've managed to make them back again. We put the two things together. But to understand it, not to go into the fourth century, Luke Acts is like the visionary. He imagines this, and he is quite willing to write a fair amount of fiction, by the way, a fair amount of fiction to imagine this world in which everything is perfect and Rome exculpates every person it meets who is from Jesus to Paul. So it's the exact opposite, the polar opposite, actually, of the book of Revelation. It says we should accommodate. Now, 
you know, it, it doesn't mean we worship Caesar. It really doesn't. That would be unfair. But for example, I think much more Luke Acts would talk about charity than it would talk about justice. It would, it would certainly tell Caesar that they should be giving huge charity to the poor. You should help the dis, dispossessed, the down, of course. But it won't raise the issue of justice. Because justice gets you crucified. Charity gets you <laughs> canonized. But you're not going to raise the issue that got Jesus and Paul executed, which is, this is not a just way to run the world. This is not a fair distribution of God's world for all God's people. Rome would have said, we will decide who gets what, when, and where. That is justice. We create justice. And Paul would say, and Jesus would say, no, God creates justice, and everyone must get a fair share of God's world. So justice is a collision course. That's the politics coming right back up again. Charity, charity is good. Everyone would agree with that. The Romans would have said that in theory too. So each has to accommodate. And that's the cost accounting that has to be done with Constantine. So I I want to deviate just a second from from the the book because uh, you don't necessarily dive into this, but I know a lot of listeners over the years have asked, and while I have you, I figured I'd I'd pick your brain on this. But um, as Christians, you know, we 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 look a lot to Paul, you know, within the New Testament, and yet uh, Paul had never actually met Jesus uh, during during the while Jesus was alive, and at the time of Paul, there were still some disciples. Uh, presumably, you know, firsthand witnesses to Jesus's teachings over the years that were still alive. So why do we put, why do we seem to put so much stock in what Paul has to say versus, you know, the disciples who were still around who had actually been witness to Jesus, uh, you know, throughout his Paul life? Paul got to write. That's, that's the first thing. Paul wrote. If Paul had been an oral preacher, even a brilliant oral preacher like Jesus, um, we'd be in some of the same position. Somebody else would have to write them down and then get to say what, what it was. And maybe that would be like Timothy and Titus. And we'd have Paul sort of Romanized and, and not quite so radical. What, what's happening with Paul is this. Jesus was speaking in the small, except for Jerusalem at the end, he was speaking in the small hamlets of Galilee. Parables that came out of the, the, the peasantry of Galilee and were approached to them. Paul took the message of Jesus, I'm going to say, my judgment of it with absolute fidelity, out into the great big capital cities, capital cities of the Roman Empire, like Corinth for, for Greece or Ephesus for Asia Minor. He didn't bother, you know, traveling along the road too much. He went for the capital cities, figuring if you get the capitals, you'll get the outer lying eventually. So he had to put his language into language that made sense to those people in the capitals. That's why you get much more of the language of Lord and Savior and, and all of that. But of course, the, the heart of Paul is the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, like two sides of the coin. He's a little bit diffident that he, he never met Jesus. You say, well, we, didn't, we don't know him that way any longer. He kind of, you know, <laughs> he'd be a little truculent, I think, if, if he was in the debate with Peter, because he's making a claim that I've had a vision of Jesus, and that makes me an apostle on the same rank as you guys. That's a kind of a stunning claim. It's like, you know, in the middle of a papal enclave, if some of the cardinals said, 
excuse me, stop the debate. I've just had a revelation from God. I'm the new Pope. No, 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 no. <laughs> no revelations, no visions. <laughs> Keep going. So if you, if you go with Paul's claim, then somebody else might have a vision of Jesus too. And Luke is very careful to say that there's only 12 apostles and those are chosen from the people who are with Jesus from the time of John the Baptist. And they're all men. He uses the word Andres, not Anthropoi, men. Luke goes to an awful lot of trouble to put Paul back in his Lucan place. Not an apostle. Very important to be sure. Sure. <clears throat> Major missionary, but not an apostle on the same rank as Peter which is, of course, what Paul would live and dies for. So Paul takes the vision of Jesus, and I'm convinced with absolute fidelity and continuity, but in different language, of course. And the fact that many people have great difficulty with Pauline language is because they don't know it's the ordinary language of Roman imperial theology. I'm going to be a little bit blunt and say, don't read the New Testament till you've read Virgil. Get Roman imperial theology down first. And you can do it in English. I was, a, I was 11 years of age at a classical boarding school in Donegal. And I have had Latin and Greek every day for five years. And I was reading Virgil and that stuff in the, in the original languages long before I ever even, maybe even heard of a New Testament. So... I got, I got Caesar's Gallic Wars and Virgil's Aeneid in first before I ever got this other stuff. That's a, that's a powerful way. You should, because then you know what's going on in the world. Then along comes Jesus. Then you can see the clash. Then you can make your own decision. Which side are you on? But you don't know if you only hear one side or the other. Oh, that's fascinating. So, um, the next part of the book, you kind of get dig into uh, Josephus. And so uh, for the folks listening, who, who, first of all, who was Josephus and why is it important as we put these pieces together to, to kind of get the bigger picture? Why is uh, Josephus's uh, work so important? Let me back up a little bit. By the, when I first imagined this book, I was thinking just of Revelation and, and uh, Luke-Acts as the, the main core. Then I knew I wanted to bring in Jesus. I, I couldn't not have Jesus's view on the whole thing. After all, he's the one who created the problem with his coin of separation. So how did he live under Caesar and under uh, God? How did he do it? And then I, I saw the problem. I, I was almost to this point when I saw the problem. But it's absurd. I've just gone into the New Testament, taken two radically different visions out of it. Now I go in and get a third one. Why should anyone believe it? Clearly, I could probably get a fourth one and a fifth one and somebody else. If I've got two absolutely opposing ones and they're in the New Testament, <laughs> why go in there, say, say I went into Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, let's say. So I, I had to think, what am I going to do? And then it, it struck me. I, I had been doing work with Josephus. Then suddenly it really struck me as a solution. I will go into Josephus, and then I'll explain in a second why Joseph, who Josephus is, and I'll take a look at God and Caesar in a contemporary of Jesus, a Jew called Josephus. Josephus. Josephus was a priest. He became a general, you could say, 
in charge of Galilee in the Great War of 66 to 74. He was captured and he told Vespasian, who was just a general at the time, you will be the next emperor. Well, Vespasian, when, when Nero was uh, committed suicide to avoid assassination in 69, all of a sudden in 68, all of a sudden Vespasian was acclaimed by his troops. I mean, it's nice to be on the biggest army on the battlefield when they're looking for a new emperor and you have, you have all your legions there besieging Jerusalem. So he turned Jerusalem over to his son Titus and he went off to Rome to become emperor, making it very simple. Josephus was right. So Josephus became a, a, was patronized by the Flavian dynasty, the new dynasty, the Julio Claudian of Augustus, they were gone, they were finished with Nero, they were gone. Now all of a sudden you have a new dynasty, Vespasian, Flavian and Domitian, and they have a great victory to announce. You want to see, you, you conquered the little Jewish people, that's a great victory. But, you know, to be a new emperor, you need a big victory. So they built the Colosseum and everything else to celebrate their victory. So Josephus now is in Rome and he is sponsored by the Flavian dynasty to write the Jewish war, which sort of defends the Romans to the Jews everywhere. Because after all, they burned the temple to the ground and destroyed the homeland. So in case the Jews might rise up across the Roman Empire. So he writes the Jewish war defend the Romans to the Jews. Then he writes the Jewish antiquities, much bigger, to defend the Jews to the Romans, as it were. So he, he writes almost a version of the Old Testament called the, the, the Jewish antiquities. And then he writes a kind of a New Testament, don't use that language, but bringing it up to date to the, to the end of the, the Great War of 66 to 74. So you could almost hold over here the Christian Old Testament, New Testament, here, over here, the two books of Josephus. And the Middle Ages did precisely that, by the way. They read Josephus in, in balance with the Old Testament, New Testament. So he gives you a different vector on the same data, as it were. Now, I read him, by the way, just as critically, just as carefully as I would read Revelation or anything else. I want to know what's he up to. I compare what he says about the, the, the book of Daniel, for example, with what the book of Daniel says, because he's not big on telling you the empires come and go and the, Ro <laughs> and the Romans just as the next in line. So let's not talk about uh, chapter seven of Daniel. So I, I watch him very carefully, but precisely because I can watch what he's after, and how, how careful he has to be with the Romans, I can read between the lines because he writes between the lines. You can see him back off when he says, you know, Vespasian was the Messiah. That tells me he knows about the Messiah. So, okay, so Vespasian was the Messiah. Maybe that's, maybe that's the cool way to go at the moment. But I understand what you're doing. We have other words for what he's saving at that part. He's saving his posterior, actually. Seated <laughs> on, on, on marble in Rome. So he's very important, but he gave me my solution. I go into... Josephus, and I ask now about how he sees God and Caesar. How, how does he live under God and Caesar? And I watch him work it out, and then I watch what he says about Jesus, because he mentions Jesus twice. I watch what he says about Jesus in the matrix of what he says about God and Caesar. And then, only then, 
at the end of the book will I say, does that agree with what I see in the New Testament about Jesus? But I, I would basically take it, first of all, from Josephus. That's the reason. So talk a little bit about, uh, after you kind of uh, talk about Josephus, you talk about something that you call uh, sanctioned theology and Sabbath okay. theology. I'm trying to imagine when Jesus announces nonviolent resistance, as it were, which he takes from, from Josephus, as it were. How do people know about that? I mean, if you read the Old Testament, for example, and you begin with the final book of the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy, and almost the last chapter, 28, it's a great big manifesto for the punishing God. God rewards those who obey him. God rewards those who obey him punishes those who disobey him. That's chapter eight of Deuteronomy. And that's sort of the theology of sanctions, I call it, that goes through most of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, right into Revelation, into the next world, as it were. God is the one who punishes evil and rewards good, all right? Now, the thing is that when the Torah was being put together, probably after the uh, exile from Babylon after the return, it was being put together primarily under the control, I suspect, of the pre priestly tradition. And they put enough for a different vision of God up front in chapter one. We call it chapter one of Genesis. I'm imagining it like this is the spectacles they want you to put on before you read this whole Bible. There's no New Testament yet. Because there you have God making human beings in God's own image and likeness. And immediately that's explained as being put in charge of the world to run it for God, like God's stewards, as we're God's representatives, God's ambassadors or anything else. We're in charge of the world to run it for God. And immediately, by the way, you're told that this is under the Sabbath rule, because that's the whole point of that even God can't skip the Sabbath as where God has to rest, because the Sabbath is, as it is clear from the rule, everyone has a right to a day off. Everyone has a right to rest, even your ass and your, your ox and your slave. Everyone has a right to a rest. It's not, about, it's not about taking a day off to pray. God demands, we're not even talking about food yet. We're talking about the most basic thing because you have to feed your slave, but you don't have to feed, give your slave a rest. So Sabbath day, Sabbath year, Sabbath jubilee makes time beat to the rhythm of human justice. That's what we're told we're supposed to do. That's our image and likeness. That's who we're made. Now, nowhere in that first chapter do I find any mention of punishments, of sanctions. If you were, if you were to say to God in Genesis 1, but what if I don't accept your image and likeness? What if I live against your image and likeness? Then I think the answer would be, then you're living against your nature. And the consequences will be you will destroy yourself. And there will be no punishments, but there will be consequences. To, to use a rather crude example, if, if I go up to the 30th story of a building and think I'm a bird and try to fly, that's not my nature. But God does not hit me with the, with the pavement as a punishment. That's a consequence. That's a result. So this vision of the first book of the Torah, in a way, counteracts the last book of the Torah and the last chapter and says, 
the, there are consequences of who you are and what you are, and you can't get away with going against it. But they're not punishments. They are intrinsic consequences, not extrinsic punishments. So there is that vision. Then when Jesus, for example, now getting to Jesus after Josephus, says that if you uh, love your enemies, if you love your enemies, you become heirs of God. He uses sons, but in that patriarchy, the son, of course, is the heir. So you can always translate the son, beloved son, firstborn son as the heir in patriarchy. So you become heirs of God on this earth when you love your enemies. And I would consider love your enemies as the one-liner for nonviolent resistance. The way you love your enemies is by nonviolent resistance. We usually look at that and we say, well, how can you love your enemies? Maybe, maybe just like them or, you know, tolerate them. But we shift over to the last word. Why does Jesus presume you'll have enemies? Why doesn't he simply say, love everyone? Our book of Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself, love the resident alien as yourself. Why doesn't he simply say, love everyone as yourself? Why does he specifically pick up, love your enemies? And then explain your enemies are those who persecute you and curse you and everything else. Because this is another way of saying you're called to nonviolent resistance. You don't go along with your, you don't agree. Even if you have to keep your mouth shut, you never agree inside that this is right. You know it's not right. And if you have the courage, you say it's not right. And if you have more courage, you act it not being right. But at least you always know this is not right, no matter what I have to do. So that's why love your enemies then fits in with, Jesus, with Josephus's manifesto of nonviolent resistance. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. It makes me think back to, as you mentioned, the um, the very first chapter in Genesis. Even the story of Genesis and the story of creation is in contrast to a lot of other religions at that time, where the world is created through violent acts, and here we have peaceful acts, and, and God just keeps saying, "And it is good, and it is good," and, and it's very different from what a lot of folks would have probably heard through other religions and of that time. You know, we, we get hung up on, on, well, did God really do it in six days? And this, I think that would make the author scream. This is poetry, but it's, 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 a, it's a serious message. You could put it in polite language. Not even God can skip the Sabbath. God can't start, as it were, on a Tuesday and zoom through to a Monday. God has to, to do to God's own work of creation so that it ends with the Sabbath. So it's telling us we human beings are not the crown of creation. We actually are the work of a late Friday afternoon. <laughs> Nobody does best work on a late Friday <laughs> afternoon. The crown of creation is the Sabbath. <laughs> so if you then follow the Sabbath from the Sabbath day and read what it says, as I've said, that everyone gets the rest, including the draft animals, got nothing to do with going to church or temple or synagogue. It is that everyone has a right to the most basic thing, a rest. Now, we haven't even got to a right to food or health or education. We're not even there yet, our land. We're just saying even that. So then the, the, the uh, 
Sabbath year, of course, and the Sabbath Jubilee go into all, all the rest of it. So the Sabbath is like the metronome of time. It's not, it's not ruled by anything else except distributive justice. So it really is a magnificent vision. And it's not really the same as the Deuteronomic vision of if you do something, you'll be punished or you'll be rewarded. It's much more having to do with intrinsic nature, who you are. And then that's, I think, the continuity that, that I find with Jesus when he can say that the reason we use nonviolent resistance is because God operates like that. God brings up the sun for everyone and sends rain on the, the just and the unjust. Whereas we might think, well, the unjust should get a downpour in a thunderstorm and we'll give a nice gentle dew to the just. So that it, it comes back almost totally circle to the first chapter of Genesis. So I, I know we're running short on time, but I, I wanted to leave listeners with this. So what, uh, what is your hope uh, for, for this book and how can we uh, learn from, uh, from this book in terms of um, where we stand, uh, particularly as Americans at this point in time, because there is a very distinct parallel between us and, and Rome. But uh, what, what, we, what would you hope would be the takeaway? I would this? hope we would learn to be what I'm going to call bilingual. Bilingual, I mean this, that if you are a Christian, other religions speak for themselves. I'm, I'm just focusing on, on Christianity here because that's my religion and my responsibility as a scholar. Learn to know your own language. Don't be embarrassed to say Jesus is divine because know what it meant in the first century. <laughs> we wouldn't use that language. If I, if I could imagine a Jesus here today, I would not use that language. But that's their language. And I would understand what they're saying is this person has done something of transcendental value for the human race. Okay, we give that person the Nobel Prize for peace or something. That's the way we do it. So know your own language. Understand it in its own first century context and then see if it still applies. But then also be able to go into the public square. And don't say, don't be able to use translated language. Take this into the public square in terms of justice and in terms of peace. You're not betraying your language. You're translating it into public language because it was in the first century public language. If, if, if Rome had not understood what Jesus was saying, they said, hmm, God's rule. I don't know what he's talking about. You might have Pilate saying to his wife, do you have a clue what he's talking about? No, I don't know what he's talking about. Let's boot him out of town. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They were saying, not you, but God. And Paul is the same. Nobody's listened to Paul and saying, wow, when he's talking about justification, Dikai Osune, I don't know what he's talking about. Let's write a book about it. No, they knew that the program of the Roman Empire was justification, making the world a just place. By our norms, we will teach you about justice. We will establish peace with our legions, and then we will have justice, and we will define justice. So they knew this is public language. It's political language. It's religious language. It's might, maybe you should say religio-political, economic and they knew quite well what they were doing when they picked off the leader and executed the leaders. And they were quite right in not trying to persecute everyone because they knew they were not violent. So I think we should have to be able to speak a language today, which is 
maybe keep our own traditional language, of course, because that's our powerhouse, but also be able to speak a language that everyone can understand in terms of violence, in terms of escalatory violence, in terms of distributive justice, in terms of peace and how it can be maintained beyond just wishing for it. That's what I would hope they would get from the book. I love it. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I was very excited to have you on today to talk about it. So thank you so much for coming back on. Uh, folks, go ahead and get it. It's called Render, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christ and Culture in the New Testament. Uh, it's an amazing book. Um, go check it out. And, and so before I let you go, where can people go to stay on top of uh, what you're up to and, and get a copy of this? Um, they can go absolutely anywhere. I suppose the obvious place is Amazon, but they could obviously go to Harper One as well. But Amazon has a page with all my stuff. Let's go.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.